I love nothing more than to go to my camp alone with a guitar and just let those lyrics and melodies happen. He had a fly rod in the hand and a hair was up in a red bandana. It was a red and gold plaid shirt and a pair of jeans and shoes and boots. And I saw that fly rod and looked at her and I went crazy. And at 6.15 in the morning, a guy knocked on my window while I was sleeping. He goes, well, full plane's leaving at 15. I said, okay, I'll, I'll get right out. Roll up the window and the guy traveling with me, I looked at him and I said, I, I think that was John fucking Girok. He said, uh, we started selling it in Tokyo, the main IFNW logo merchandise. That'll tell you, I mean, that was being worn in discos, not duck blinds. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Steve Barry. Steve Barry is a legendary master Maine guide who resides in Saco, Maine and has spent his lifetime guiding and fishing on Maine rivers and the Canadian Maritimes in Labrador. Steve built a cabin on the banks of the Moose River in Rockwood, Maine, and operates the Moose River Guide Service. Similar to a few other podcast guests, Nate Bacon and Randy Spencer, Steve utilizes his preferred watercraft, the Grand Laker Canoe, to guide for landlocked salmon and native brook trout below the tailwaters of Brassway Dam on the Moose River. Fly fishing on the Moose River is a unique endeavor, and Steve knows the score. Floating smell patterns, nymph fishing, and almost impossible ascents of the difficult rapids to access the best holes where the trophy moosehead trout and salmon spawners love to hold on the Moose River. I love to spend time fishing and hanging out with Steve on the river and in his cabin. If you are looking to hire a decorated guide for a day on the Moose River, Steve is your man. I learn a lot from Steve whenever we fish together and exchange ideas. We share a passion for fly fishing in Maine and Labrador, and Steve holds native brook trout and landlocked salmon in the highest regard, as I do as well. Steve is an engineer by training and has been responsible for sea testing some of the best battleships and destroyers to be commissioned by Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine. If the ship does not pass the muster with Steve, the ship does not get released to the United States Navy. Steve is highly respected in the maritime engineering community, and he will share some great experiences of his professional endeavors in our intimate discussion. Steve is gentle. Steve is driven. And Steve will always take a backseat to his guests to ensure that anyone fishing with him or being guided by him gets the best opportunity to connect with a fresh, hot fish and become hooked on the sport as he has. In this episode, we discuss mutual friends, Steve's earliest memories of learning to fly fish with his father on the headwaters of the Penobscot River, as well as many other great stories of a life lived on Maine rivers and Steve's passion for introducing young people, friends, and clients with everything that he loves about Maine fly fishing and sharing with others how to do it. It comes with great pleasure to introduce my dear friend and mutual professional guide to our listening audience, Steve Barry. Welcome to Flyline Podcast. Hey, Mike, it's nice to be here. I'm on the Right in my cabin, bringing up the rods for tomorrow morning at East Outlet, sitting right on the tail end of Gilbert's Pool, overlooking the spawning fish. Life is good. And here we are in mid-October. Uh, you and I have spent a lot of time fishing in Maine together. Steve, I really appreciate, and I know our audience appreciates having you on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, and a shock to uh, to be even be asked. I'm kind of a humble person, so this is um, 
Very, very nice. You listen to the podcast. I do. I listen to all of them. And I think uh, one thing I glean from all of them is I learn something from every one of your podcasts. These Everybody brings something different to the table. They do. And and the thing that they always bring, Steve, is they bring a story about themselves that the audience doesn't know about them. Maybe someone knows Steve Barry, but they don't know something about Steve Barry. And we're probably going to cover some things that people don't know. And maybe I don't know. Yeah. So full disclosure, Steve and I are literally getting ready to fish tomorrow. So you're going to hear reels pulling. You're going to hear <laughs> lines tightening up. Steve's rigging up his rods as we talk right now, because I think that that's so reminiscent of what we do in Maine is uh, we fish together. And that's what we're doing. Uh, Steve's got one rod rigged up. He's getting ready to rig up a second one. Steve, let's go back. How'd you learn how to fly fish as a kid? Jeez, uh, my dad, uh, 1968 or 69, uh, brought me up to Moosehead Lake Reason for the first time. I think I was 10 or 11 years old. And we, he brought me to Sabumbic Dam of all places. And back then, uh, they were still doing the log drives. And I went down the base of that dam. And uh, he showed me how with an old Fenwick fly reel with a metalist reel. An old Fenwick rod, glass rod, and I got to fishing, and I was catching uh, all these salmon on a Mickey fin. I'll just never forget it, and it just drove the passion back then. So it kind of, I kind of look back on that, and I every time I see a young kid about that age out here on Moose River, I just have the urge to go over and talk to them and uh, just to to encourage them. Right, they're like sponges; they soak it right up, and I just love it. So your father and I met, just a little bit of background. I actually met Steve's father before I met Steve. Tell yeah. me about your dad's work. Well, my dad was a U.S. Deputy Federal Marshal out of Portland. And uh, he uh, would take and bring uh, people under the witness protection plan up here in Moosehead. And actually stayed at my camp a few times. But he did hire Mike and his, his good friend, John Cooper. Uh, they all went down and floated the East Outlet. And he told me, he said, that was uh, one of the most spectacular days. And they were talking on uh, satellite phones to the office and while they're floating down the river. And that's just typical my dad. He was that type of person. And um, he uh, he really enjoyed it. So I for the audience, I met Jim um, Coop. And Cooper, John Cooper. John Cooper's wife had bought a gift certificate uh, to go fly fishing on the drift boat. And he brought along your dad with him. And so now I've got two guys in my boat with nickel-plated 357 Magnums and and early, you know, satellite phones. No one had a sat phone. And they're out on the river uh, fishing. We're having a great time learning how to catch a fish and having good success. And the phone rings, Cooper's phone rings. And TSA is calling to say that they think they have a mule coming in from Jamaica bringing in drugs. And uh, Cooper says, well, uh, when when she lands at Portland, give me a call. So the plane lands and, and his sat phone rings. And uh, Mike, I got to take this call. Call comes in. Yeah. Okay. We've got her in the interview room. Okay. And she says she's uh, coming back on her honeymoon. Yeah. Bullcrap. She's a, a mule. We've caught this girl, Julie Brown, from, from Maine four times for bringing in drugs. We're going to get her again. So uh, give me a call back after you guys have done a strip search. So they do a strip search, and um, they say, well, she uh, she says she's a teacher in, in Yarmouth. And I think your father speaks up and says, is she white or is she black? And they go, well, she's white. And they go, oh, you got the wrong woman. That's not her. So some woman named Julie Brown 
with the same date of birth is a mule for drugs. And this was not her coming back from her honeymoon and went through that whole process. I got a huge chuckle. As a guide, you don't have two federal marshals in your boat every day. Yeah. And your dad was a great guy. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of uh, instances up here where we'd have, uh, uh, you know, people on the witness protection plan, and they would go out here bird hunting. <laughs> They'd drive the car, my dad would be bird hunting up here. And uh, yeah, it, um, it was quite the experience to grow up in that environment, for sure. What was that environment? Your dad was a marshal. What was your mom doing? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she raised us four kids practically alone. And um, my dad was uh, gone on a lot of details down in Washington when they when they were demonstrating against the Vietnam War, and he was down there protecting the Pentagon and getting hit in the head with signs and all that movement back then. It um, it was quite a quite a story uh, at the house every every time he came home to Saco, Maine, little Saco, Maine, but. Um, yeah, he he was he was a great dad, and he was a great role model. But he didn't borrow the car unless you asked him first. That's for sure. <laughs> no, not at all, Stephen. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so your dad taught you how to fly fish. Yeah, he he showed me the basics, right? And then it was just a matter of like I do everything. I watch people and uh, listen to different stories and people. And I've had a lot of people show me how to fly cast. And then you make your mistakes and you learn and you just keep going at it. But it was the passion for fishing is what really drove that whole thing. Like for this morning, when I got up in Ottawa, Canada, this morning at 2 a.m., I was coming to Moosehead Lake. So I drove 11 and a half hours to get here to fish with Mike. That's the passion. And I, I, I miss that. I, I don't see that in a lot of the, of the fish, other fishermen. Even my best friends don't have that passion for fishing. And it's too bad because I just, it drives me. Yeah. Steve literally woke up in Ottawa this morning, had a 11 hour drive back to Saco, yeah. jumped back in the rig after loading up your fly fishing gear and made it to Moosehead around 4 o'clock this afternoon. Yeah. And that's the drive that we all have to get out on the water because these days are limited. Right, right, exactly. And as you get older, every day is important. You make every day a good day and with a good attitude and go out there and get it, get at it, right? And so, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, so uh, let's fast forward, Steve. How did you and I meet? So I know your father. I've guided him a few times. And one day, I'm down in Greenville. I'm guiding full-time for Denny Legere at the main guide fly shop, and I've got a day off. And I'm in the Indian Hill Trading Post, and the Leatherman Company has got a little table set up, and they're selling Leatherman uh, – what what are the tools called? Uh, Super Tool or, or whatever. They've got all the tools set up. And I'm standing there thinking about buying one because a Leatherman would be a really handy thing to have in the drift boat. And these two guys are standing next to me, and I'm looking at one of them, short guy, maybe five one, five two, and Steve is standing next to him. And I recognize this guy is the man that taught me to tie the twist it around five times and put it back down through the hole when I was eight years old at Wings Mills Dam, Nick Sibilia. Yeah, he he is a uh, legend in my in my life. A little Italian fella, it was in the Korean War in the front lines of the Korean War, and I met him at the Sauk River Salmon Club hatchery, and he was setting up to raise Atlantic salmon fry, and we got to talking. I thought he was I was going to set him up with my dad just to, as a, being a fishing partner, but as it worked out, uh, him and I became fast friends, and and yeah, and he it was just ironic that we saw our, uh, Mike Jones and Mike recognized Nick and uh, it, it became just a great moment. And uh, 
Nick and I, after that, came up several times and fished with Mike on the uh, East Outlet, and uh, he just enjoyed that. And that just goes to show, you plant that seed, and that seed it may fall on fertile ground, it may not, but uh, you should try as best you can to uh, spread spread that word. Yeah, and the fertile ground that it fell on was that I remembered the guy that taught me how to tie my first fishing knot standing on Wings Mills Dam in Mount Vernon, Maine. Nick at the time was selling flooring, I think, in Reedfield. Yeah. And, you know, doing the blue collar thing. And, uh, but he was always the guy, Nick, this little Italian guy, was always the guy in the right waders catching fish on opening day at Wings Mills Dam when nobody else was. And so when he would walk over to me after just landing a salmon and say, hey, young man, let me show you how to tie that on, I was all ears. And I sucked it up like a sponge. And that was a seed that was planted with me. Right. Fast forward so many years, and I look into the face of the man that did that, and what I did, and you'll remember this, Steve, is I said, I want to repay a debt of gratitude to you, Nick. I want to take you in my drift boat. I'm a professional fly fishing guide on the river now, and I want to take you down the east outlet, and let's spend a day, no charge, it's on me. Right. And we did that for a few years. Yeah, we did. And he uh, he just so appreciated it. It brought tears to his eyes to uh, see Mike and to bring him and to go out with him. And uh, he, again, was one of those people with really drive and enthusiasm for fishing. Uh, it was in a time I didn't say I was going to go up to camp that he didn't go. And some days he would set out in front of his garage on a five-gallon bucket, sound asleep at three o'clock in the morning because he didn't want to miss me when I pulled into the yard to bring him up here. It's just amazing. I I I I just gained so much energy from that feller and uh, and knowledge. My goodness, he had knowledge of of everything you can think. Of, and he's been everywhere. He was a nymph fisherman before nymph fishing was a thing. Yeah, he always used to say he was always turning over rocks, looking at nymphs and identifying them, and then trying to match it. He he did that right up to his death in uh, 2015, and he um. He, uh, yeah, he was amazing, just amazing person. And he loved you, Steve. Oh, him and I were best of friends. He said on his deathbed, he said, I didn't know you for very long, but you, you were my best friend, which is really something. I think you were. Yeah. I know you were. Yeah, he's an amazing person. And, um, and I'll say it too, he, he was my best friend, yeah. So Dick Sebelia was a, a main fly <coughs> fisherman, not a guide, uh, not somebody that wrote books or anything like that. But super avid, was fishing all the time, and uh, he was the first person to really get me started with understanding that there were some technical issues you had to overcome in fly fishing. But uh, what I'd like to do, Steve, is let's talk back about you. Um, Tell me about your professional background. So you went to school in Saco. Yeah, I I was a graduate of Thornton Academy, and uh, just like all the rest of my family, and when I graduated... uh, a fella tapped me on the shoulder named Joe Vashon, and he told me, you should go to um, Maine Maritime. And he was a graduate of 1950, and uh, he got me into Maine Maritime. I graduated there, went fast to work. I think in my sophomore year, they uh, Texaco hired me and provisions when I graduate to work for them. So I went out and I had a career with Texaco for 17 years. And um, What were you doing? I was a, a Marine U.S fleet operating uh, engineer. And um, I went from third all the way up to chief engineer with that company. And it was a great, uh, it was a great job. And then after I retired there, I went to work for Bath Ironworks as a hull test manager. Again, I worked there on and off uh, for almost 20 years. 
And uh, soon after I retired from Bath Ironworks, I got a call from a fellow that I knew at Bath Ironworks who became CEO of Vancouver Shipyards. And, uh, and he asked me to go out there and consult and help uh, the Canadian government build their offshore fishing vessels, which was very, very satisfying job. That's probably the most satisfying job satisfaction job I ever had. But I was there uh, for 18 months. And of course, I went fishing every weekend. Right. So let's actually back up. There's a lot of content that I want to cover there. Um, let's go back to when you were doing your work out of Maine Maritime Academy. Uh, what, what, where, what bodies of water were you on? Where were you traveling? What was your day-to-day job like doing? Well, that was, you were a merchant marine, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a school. It's a great, was a, uh, semi-military school. It's changed with the times, um, with the different, um, jobs that are out there now. But, uh, back then you're either a deck, decky or you're an engineer. And uh, I chose the engineering route and uh, learned. I got my third engineer's license and uh, right out of school went to work for Texaco. And you have to sail a year on that license, sea time wise. Where would you go? Around, around, mostly around the uh, continental United States and both those shores. But most of them were from Texas to uh, New York or from Long, Island, uh, Long, Long Beach up to Anacortes up in the Northwest. And, uh, but then, uh, as the price of doing business here in the United States for shipyards, they started sending all their ships overseas. So then I was all over the place Singapore, Portugal, Greece, everywhere as you can think of, uh, overhauling these ships as, a, as an engineer. And it was a great experience, a great. And of course, I would bring my wife as much as I could, you know, the, when the kids were younger and uh, they traveled all over the place too. So it was, it was an awesome job. Um, unfortunately, when the Exxon Valdez came and uh, incident happened with Exxon, Texaco decided that they were going to um, um, mop all their fleet. So they did, and I lost my job, and that's what uh, got me back into uh, Bath Ironworks. So let's talk about BIW. Uh, Steve said very quickly earlier he was doing hull testing. So now they're building battleships, and what kind of ships were well, they? Well, they were doing the Aegis class destroyers uh, when I was there, and they, they did the Zumwalt class as well. Um, but um, mostly it was the Aegis class. I think I was involved in about 10 of those ships, and um, they're, they're wonderful machines. And I really enjoyed building it as much as I did testing it. So I was sort of the head of the test organization, and uh, I ran all different facets of uh, – oversight really these guys are just um, were just amazing shipbuilders so talented and and i i was always in awe of them but uh going out on trials was my highlight of my uh of my career many times i've gone out to trials to demonstrate to the navy that um, the ship could do exactly what it was contracted to do so now all of the journeymen electricians carpenters everybody has finished their job the the boat is done it has to be tested by the corporation representing the product to the customer. Correct. And they call that an inserve board. So the customer has a special board of guys that call the inserve board, and they would come on board, and uh, we would go through the whole pre-planned um, test, test organization's uh, plan and show them all detailed out on paper, and then they would uh, score us. <laughs> they score us, you know, A, B, C. The customer. Yeah, the customer, yeah. And then um, 
And then they would either, uh, they have a, a write trial cards against the defects and, uh, we would have to be, we'd be tasked to fix all them. And then when they were all fixed, then we would deliver the ship to the Navy. Then that became another whole new phase of, uh, training. They would train the, uh, the Navy personnel. Uh, my operating crew guys would, uh, train them and, uh, cause take it, they're, they've, they're book smart, but they're, uh, only 18 to 21 years old and they, they were grabbing a hold of a, multi-billion dollar ship and they were uh, tasked to uh, they had to pass a test as well uh, the navy uh, came on board and tested them to make sure that they knew that they could uh, operate it so it, all that was very very satisfying and very i was very proud of that job and i still am today and um we've got about a thousand people on uh on, on facebook that we uh and the all these guys talk back and, and back and forth some had better experiences than others but for the most part um, it was a very satisfying job. Well, your your reputation at the shipyard, Steve, I don't talk to anybody that, I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time, but I come into casual conversations with people that say, oh, I, I work at BIW, at Bath Ironworks. And I say, well, I, I have a friend, uh, you know, Steve Barry, they all know you. Yeah. Everyone knows you. Well, You're yeah. a household name in the shipbuilding <laughs> Industry in Maine, yeah. Well, and that, that's that could be another podcast in yeah, itself. Yeah, well, hopefully all better, more good than bad. But uh, it was um, it was quite a challenging job, and, uh, and certainly there's every types of personality that you can think of there. And it takes all types to build a ship, and uh, from politicians to the to the to the accountants to the engineers to the to the hands on people on the ship. And uh, again, I was uh, I'm still at awe at uh, what they what they can produce there. So at one point, Steve, uh, I don't know if someone approaches you or you see an opportunity to go to Vancouver. Talk about that. Yeah, well, this fellow that I had for a superintendent at Bath Ironworks, Mark Lamar and John McCarthy, um, ended up being president and vice president out there in Vancouver Shipyard, a, really a startup Canadian shipyard out there. And um, they... Uh, went out and they contracted a bunch of consultants, which were really a bunch of us retired fellas. And uh, we went in, put our two cents in and tried to help them uh, not make the mistakes uh, that they were liable to make when they first started up that yard. And those Canadian uh, shipbuilders were just so easy to work with and very cooperative and wanted to learn. And it was very, very job. The job satisfaction was on. on what were you guys building, Steve? Well, there was called the offshore OFSV. Uh, it was a offshore fish uh, science vessel. And they would um, gillnet these uh, fish. And then, uh, and because Canada is really into the management of their oceans. And they would test water quality. And they would do all the all the scientists. This was really a scientist, um, bunch of uh, biologists, whatnot, um, trying to maintain, see, and monitor the health of the oceans out there. And uh, they've got one in Halifax and two on the on the west coast, and um, just spectacular vessels, and uh, and very capable of doing a lot. And the Coast Guard's doing it now. We've uh, graduated from that. Once we help. Uh, consult and build those ships. They got contracts for a joint, they call it a JSS, which is a joint supply ship. And that's the first military uh, commission ship that, um, so, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy for them and for Mark and John and that whole crew out there. They were just, uh, again, spectacular to work for. Steve, that's a great uh, capture of your, your career, your professional endeavors that you've done. 
Let's go back to your fly fishing a little bit, if you don't mind, because I know that that's really where our, our audience, that's where their heart goes pitter-pat. Right. So you learned how to fly fish from your dad. Tell me about becoming a guide. Yeah, well, I um, I just saw the guides out here on the river. So I built this cabin in 1980, and there were probably five or six older guides out here. And um, I used to just marvel at how they would uh, bring guys sports out, and uh, some would just paddle. And they would paddle against the current all day. And others uh, had their own uh, locally made uh, canoes around here. And uh, the Records Canoe are, are famous still today as being one of the most well-built canoes in this area. And um, I said, gee, someday I'm going to do that. But I never really had time, right, uh, to take uh, to, to go through it. So when, uh, when I got laid off uh, from Texaco in 1996, I said, I'm going to go out and get my, uh, my main guide license. So I, I studied and then I uh, took the test thinking I'm just going to walk right in and get it. And uh, I passed my hunting and fishing, but I flunked my recreational license. Okay. Yeah. As a result, you have to take it all really one by one. Anyways, I got that license in 1998. And, um, and I said, well, you know, after I built this house in 1982 on the tail end of Gilbert's pool, I said, I'm, I'm going to start guiding. So, all through those years that I was at uh, Bath and stuff, Bath Ironworks, I um, actually guided up here for about two dozen people, and those were paying customers. But and then I had uh, at least that amount of number of um, of guys that are friends of mine and friends of friends, and I just really, really found it enjoyable. Again, it was a very job satisfaction was through the roof. So, Steve, I think it's fascinating. Um, Steve was still working. Uh, as a merchant marine, when you saw this property on the Moose River that you and I are sitting at, as we are recording this podcast right now, yeah, you saw it available. Oh, it was it was and crazy. I love the financing story. Yeah, well, um, Bill Urich uh, Senior was uh, he owned from way back when, practically. Uh, I mean, a lot of the property up here, and. Um, I started calling around. Uh, I said to my wife, I said, Jesus, she would love to have a place up here. So I um, found out who owned uh, the big chunk of land and uh, went, and his uh, daughter told me that he was in Colombia. <laughs> the country? Yeah, the country of Colombia. And he was down there uh, selling tires and uh, dealing with diamonds or something. And uh, so she gave me his phone number. I called him and I just said, I would love to buy some property up there on the Moose River. And he said, well, where? And I told him, and he said, how much do you want? And I said, I don't know, give me 100 foot on the river. He said, sure, I'll sell it to you. So uh, I couldn't believe it. So uh, he sold it to me for, um, I think it was $18,000. And um, I went into the town of Greenville to ask for financing, and they said nothing up there in Rock Rockwood, Maine is worth 18000 on the water. And so I went and told him about that, and he turned right around and financed it for me at 12%. Owner at, owner financing. Owner financing. At 12%. At 12%. Which is not a good rate. And it was 16% through uh, Scowhegan Savings. But uh, anyways, long story short, uh, I ended up buying it, and I was in a merchant marine, so I um, I paid it off in a couple of years. And and there began the, the process of um, – Building this cabin. What was the process of building the cabin? Well, this hang on. This cabin is, has a vaulted ceiling. It's a traditional log siding cabin uh, with uh, modern amenities: uh, double pane windows, great entrance, deck on the front looking over the river, a center chimney with wood stove, 
it's perfect. Uh, you have a drilled well, septic, everything. Yeah. It's it's perfect. And you, what year did you actually build the cabin and tell the audience about the process of building the cabin? It was it was almost uh, bizarre, so bizarre because um, we bought the property. My wife and I cleared the lot, got it all cleared in uh, 1982, and in the winter of, of 1982, um, we were driving back home to uh, New Hampshire. And uh, we stopped at um, in Skowhegan, one of the supermarkets here. And on the truck of one of these guys' truck was a sign that said, I build log cabins. I just burst out laughing. I said, well, this is the type of guy I, I need to talk to. So <laughs> I waited for him to come out of Hannaford's. And I said, hey, um, I showed him on an envelope. I said, I need a cabin built like this and the foundation's poured and everything. And it's ready to go. It got power. And he said, sure, I'll I'll build that cabin for you. I said, yeah, but I want those big log purlins in there, and I want it to be a little bit different than a, than a kit house. He said, no problem. So in the uh, March of uh, 1982, we, uh, him and I jumped up into this condo up here on the, on the water, Moosehead Condos up here, and we stayed there, and uh, we built this thing, him and I. And uh, he was a good thing. He was a good carpenter. I was a hard worker, but he was a good carpenter. And he had got an old friction brake crane, and I brought it in, and we would lift these logs up, and they would we put it all together. Was it a kit? No, it was. Uh, this is all custom, and uh, the logs themselves are a machine four sides, and they um, so they snap together tongue and groove, so make a nice uh, tight tight fit. But the logs are something that he cut out in the spruce logs. He cut out of his um, in backwood property where he lived, and he dried them, and he milled them, and uh, one side, and uh, yeah, he just brought them up in a big old truck, and uh, we we put it together. And really, honestly, we did it just by the seat of our pants. And uh, he got it all built in about a month. It took us about four weeks to build this. And then uh, I've been putting around, but the fishing's been so good, I, I haven't really be, really put the time like I should into the place. But, um, yeah, it's a great, uh, great place, great location. And a lot of people can come in here. They don't have to wipe their feet off. They can come in here and sit down and do whatever, tie flies and um, go fishing and everything. Yeah, but it's it's all good. So the the cabin, if you've ever been to Rockwood and you know where Maynard's is, if you if you cross over the bridges, if you're going up uh, toward Twenty Mile Gate or the Birches or anything like that, uh, once you come over the bridge in Rockwood, you you turn left, you go past Maynard's, and you go until the road ends, and you turn left, and that's where Steve's camp is. He's right by Gilbert's Pool. He's at the basically where the camps end on the on the Moose River, right. and. Um, I can't remember the very first time I came here, but I was immediately impressed. You know, you handed over the keys. I remember one year I was working and I was supposed to spend a week uh, down in Greenville and the cabin that I had rented was just full of mothballs and mold and terrible. And I picked up my cell phone and I kind of turned to the girl I was with at the time and I said, just hang on a second. And I called you on the phone and I said, Steve, is there anyone in camp? And you said no. Go ahead and use it, Mike. You know where the keys are. That's the generosity that you have yeah. always extended. But um, Steve, once you built a camp and it was established, what did you learn as a camp owner? Well, I was uh, watching the fishermen out here. I was amazed at uh, you know uh, what they were using and um, and how they were catching the fish. And there was a lot of uh, trolling and a lot of uh, using uh, dead bait, dead smelts. That was the big the big draw out here, right? A floating and, smelt. 
not even a floating smelt. They were using live smelt, um, dead smelt uh, sewed on, and they could all the, they could troll all the way up to uh, with this live bait all the way up to the top of Gil, uh, Gilbert's pool. That has since moved back almost uh, a quarter mile down the river where the red posts are now. And uh, from that point up is uh, now fly fishing, uh, trolling with flies only. And um, it's, it's, uh, but I learned a lot about all the different people up here and what they were using and uh, the hatches and stuff and started learning the river. Oh my gosh. Watching these guys go up and down that river, those records canoes, all, and some polling on those canoes all the way up to the dam, right? And um, I, I struggled uh, for many years because I just didn't have the right equipment. I had all the rods and reels and stuff, but uh, to really fish this river, it was really, Opened my eyes is when I bought the Dale Toby Grand Lake Stream uh, Square Stern canoe that I own now, and um, that canoe is so well built, and it better be because I I pounded up and down the river, and um, and learning how to read the water was a big thing. Yeah, so Steve has tossed out a few names that are really important. Fred Records is a uh, highly regarded ash and cedar strip canoe builder from Rockwood that would have resided on the opposite side of river, the river from Steve's camp. Right. And when I was a, a teenager and I worked at the Birches uh, washing dishes, um, I could go up to Fred Records' canoe building operation. It was right. still functioning in the 80s. And all the canoes in Rockwood and around Moosehead had the copper-tipped bow. Um, I can't think of what the term is, but you can recognize Fred Records canoe very quickly by just looking at the construction. And his construction was was exquisite. The boats were strong. They were consistent. Uh, they were beautiful. Uh, short boats. They were designed for, if you needed to paddle across Moosehead in a canoe, which is a big lake, you needed a big canoe. And if you wanted a square stern canoe or you wanted to have a boat that you could maybe go down uh, to the foxhole on the West Branch, you needed an 18 to 20-foot canoe. And Fred Records was making those canoes. And Steve uh, ended up getting uh, a Dale Toby. And Dale's from uh, Grand Lake Stream. And so if you listen to any of our former podcasts, we met with Nate Bacon, who did a podcast. And Nate Bacon speaks very highly of Toby as being a, a equivalent builder of fantastic crafts. And how did you settle on that boat? Well, um, again, Nick Sebelia, right, um, contacted Dale, and Dale had a, a canoe that he used personally for himself. And uh, he was right around the winter time, and uh, he said uh, that he would sell me that canoe, but he was going to overhaul it. Well, no one better to recondition a, a canoe than Dale Toby, the fellow who built it. And he built it. He, he gave it. I sold, I bought it from him. It was like practically a brand-new canoe, even though it was probably eight years old at the time. But uh, what a great canoe. It's sturdy, strong. Um, How's it made? It's Well, it's got the cedar strips inside, and it's got, but it's got really um, a wider beam in the, in the back, and uh, it's like four, a little over four foot uh, wide, and uh, the gunnels are like made out of three-quarter inch by six-inch uh, wide uh, thwarts. And uh, they've just, uh, it's just a strong, strong canoe. And uh, I put a couple holes in it. I I ain't done a lot to. I put a couple holes in it, and uh, mostly for my own mistake. Uh, you know, when you start going up this river uh, below a thousand cfs, 
then you're risking uh, one bad move could be detrimental to a nice wooden canoe. But uh, good news that uh, it's made with fiberglass and you can fix that pretty quick. And uh, I used to fix it in 24 hours and be back on the river. But um, what a great canoe. And that opened up the whole river to me. I've always used to drag that canoe from my camp all the way up those rapids. And I see every once in a while somebody do it. But I say to myself when I see him, well, I used to do that. I used to drag that canoe all the way up to the dam and back and float it all the way back. So uh, I did that for many, many years until I, uh, until I got that tail, Dale Toby canoe. That, that was the game changer for me. So what Steve just said was he was using more of a traditional double-ended canoe and working his way up the river. And then once he had a Grand Laker, which had a square stern, um, he started the endeavor of trying to actually travel up to the Brassway Dam under motor. Right. And and that's maybe some of your predecessors were already doing that. And when we get into the second half of the podcast, Steve, I want to talk about what a day like is with you guiding on the river and how you approach the river and how you, you know, navigate up through the rapids and all that. Well, let's hold off on that for a little bit more. Um, I want to talk to you about one more thing that I think really deserves a tip of the hat in the work that you've done with I know that I was able to, through Nick's influence, uh, we talked about Nick earlier, he asked me to come down to the Saco River Salmon Club. Right. Talk about the Saco River Salmon Club. What What is a Saco River Salmon Club and what's the work that you guys have taken on? Well, that is a great, great organization. In 1985, uh, there was a truck, uh, a hatchery truck coming down the Route 95 past Bitterford where, the Saco River, where it passes over the Saco River and its aerator broke down. And instead of losing all those fish that they were traveling down to New Hampshire with, they just stopped on the side of the road and dropped all their smolts in um, Atlantic salmon. Yep, dropped them right in there at uh, on the on ninety five. <laughs> These fish, unbeknownst to all of us, um, a few years later, um, they came back, and they came back in numbers. And how they got over. Um, the east and west channel of the Cataract Dam and over uh, Bradbury Dam and Springs and Bradbury Dam. They made it up there, obviously, on the high water thing, and they made it up to Skeleton Dam. And I just happened to be fishing for bass at the time, and um, I hooked one of these Atlantic salmon. And uh, I just can't tell you what how exciting it was. And uh, it, it was like crazy. We had like maybe 50 or so uh, of those, you know, 8 to 12-pound uh, Atlantic salmon in the Sauk River. So it wasn't soon after that that uh, a lot of people are instrumental in that organization, which is mainly John Blunt, Jim Bernstein, and uh, there was a, a bunch of people, too, 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 too many to, to list, but uh, Ed, Ed Langle, I, I mean, there was this, they actually said, well, it's maybe if the water level, water quality is good, then why don't we make a hatchery? So there it began. And it started out in Dayton and uh, Buxton, and they built a little hatchery, and they were stocking little fry, and um, it was very satisfying, but um, probably not so productive. But over the 30 years, if you can believe it, we, I've been doing that for over 35 years. I, I was in that organization, and uh, – it's done some marvelous things. Habitat restoration, fish passage over dams, teaching the kids uh, in the Fish Friends program all through all the area, uh, fifth graders, sixth graders, teaching them the life cycle of the salmon. And yeah, it was really, really rewarding. Not so productive, but rewarding. 
And uh, now uh, the University of New England uh, raises adult salmon as, along with us, and they go through the whole process of milking the eggs and uh, and fertilizing them, and then raising those those uh, those little fry in our back into our hatchery. So we had to do that because of the listing of Atlantic salmon as an endangered species. And once we did that, they did that. We lost our source of eggs. So we had to find a way to get our own eggs, and that's what they're doing today. University of New England students are raising, helped raise the Atlantic salmon, and uh, we're taking the eggs and we're bringing them up almost all the way through the par, fry, par, smolt stage, all the way to adults. And you introduced them into the Soccer River. And then we had to find out where, right? And when, uh, we did do all those surveys, those those guys did countless hours of surveys of the best habitat by units, and uh, we would, couldn't overstock things, could understock things. Uh, the, the state couldn't stock brook trout on top of the Atlantic salmon. We had to have a place for them to go. Culverts had to be fixed. Uh, beaver dams had to be taken down. I mean, these guys were just working tirelessly and all volunteer work and no funding from the state. All from uh, local businesses and um, and from uh, the Lang Salmon Federation and uh, volunteer work and LL Bean used to give us a lot of money um, to help us uh, build the hatchery to update the thing. But I was an engineer in the Merchant Marine, so I fit right in there perfectly. And I sat there and did a lot of the plumbing with Ray Duso and him and I and. A lot of the fellows, John Blunt, everybody just worked really hard on uh, getting that system set up. So when you talk about that system, Steve, you've talked to me about it before, but you've not shared it with the audience. Tell me about the hatchery that you guys have and what why it's unique in the way that it works. Well, it's a closed system. Most of the systems you see out throughout the country are flow through, so water in, water out. This is water that just goes around and around. So with that, you have to filtrate it and disinfect it and... Uh, the right flow and oxygenate it and uh, temperature temperature there's a lot of mechanical things one mechanical thing breaks fish die and so that was the stress part of that whole and still is of that whole operation is uh is uh, one mistake one night and now you can lose the whole year of class of fish that you're trying so hard to duplicate nature right nature does this on automatic, right? And uh, but we have to do it with all refrigeration units and everything else, right? And uh, it's 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 incredibly hard, which gave me a real appreciation for the fish here in Moose River and all throughout the state. Is uh, when you get a fish that's uh, two or three years old, what it took to get that fish to be two or three year, years old is amazing, right? It's amazing how they they made it that way. They're so precious. I would really refrain from killing any of those fish. I, I haven't, I don't think I've killed a, but two or three fish in the last 10 years, be, mostly because I have such a deep respect for um, those fish and, and, uh, and how valuable and what a precious resource we have here in Maine, right? The brook trout, I grab those brook trout, I just can't believe them. And the job the biologists are doing, I think, what the, uh, they're doing in, in, uh, in Moosehead Lake is, is very good. Steve Seebeck and Tim Ombre, are, they're just wonderful people and they do a great job. And it's a thankless job, and um, but I appreciate their their hard work. And we're talking. Uh, Steve's referring to the work that they're doing on the tributaries as well as the lake itself. And so I want you to think um, naturally. East Outlet, Moose River, Roach River, right? The largest spawning area for the native brook trout, and absolutely. In, um, Little places like uh, Subum Extreme, yeah. and all the tributaries that lead into uh, Moosehead Lake. 
But um, Steve, I want to take a quick break, if you don't mind. And uh, we're going to do a fly line flashback. And after we come back from the flashback, I want to talk to you about Mackenzie River Lodge, because we both love it. And I want to talk to you more about guiding and fishing on the Moose River and maybe some of the history that's connected to it that you know. Right on. Thanks. In this Flyline flashback, we reference the history of Arthur McDougall from excerpts from the Outdoor Sporting Library. Arthur McDougall Jr. was born the son of a carpenter-turned-preacher in Enfield, Maine in 1896. After spending time overseas during World War I and a subsequent education at the Theological Seminary in Bangor, Maine, McDougall was called to the ministry to preach at a church in Bingham in 1923. Soon thereafter, he began to write. It seems as though things all began to come together there on the banks of the Kennebec River, so famed for its trout and salmon fishing, and a fictional character, Dud Dean, sprang to life through McDougall's writing. First appearing in Field and Stream magazine in the 1930s and later compiled in several published books, the Dud Dean stories were wildly popular for the magazine. Dud Dean was, as they say, the quintessential main guide, an honest man, expert woodsman and captivating storyteller. Dean captured the hearts and minds of outdoor enthusiasts throughout the country for decades through McDougall's pen. McDougall was a constant presence in the Dud Dean stories and told them in first person. In typical fashion, he and Dud would often be out on some trout water or headed that way, and Dud would get to telling stories. Dud was an incredible storyteller, but not because he stretched the truth. On the contrary, Dud's honesty was refreshing. It was the way he described the setting and the people in his stories in an unexpected clarity of his somewhat broken main dialect that made them so appealing. In any Dud Dean tale, McDougal had the uncanny ability to really make you feel like you were there, in the main woods, walking alongside Dud and their companions. In addition, the era in which these stories were based adds even more appeal. Reaches of the Kennebec River, area streams, lakes and ponds were described in a time when roads, houses, dams, and other signs of encroaching civilization were much less pronounced. Most places required a train ride or a long walk from Bingham for a day's fishing. Even though cars began to arrive on the local scene, roads in which to drive them were scarce. Waterways were still a major means of transportation, including the shipment of millions of logs downriver to the mills. And, at least in the Dud Dean stories, the fishing was much, much better. Each of the Dud Dean stories contains in it a unique sense of people and place. Characteristics found in the personality of Dud Dean and the surrounding cast of characters in his stories are real. They represent traits of people we have all known. And the interactions between these characters, as described by Dud, is truly genuine. In all, McDougall wrote a total of 56 Dud Dean stories, a book of poems celebrating life in Maine, and another book dedicated to trout fishing. And now, back to the second half of this episode. What happened at Sabu McDam when your dad first took you up there? Well, my brother and I, I was, was about 11, and my brother was 10. And we went up on top of Spoon McDam, and it must have been, I don't know, maybe as far as you could see, a long boom of pulp logs that were about four to six feet long. As far as you could see in Spoon Lake, 
We never thought a word about it, and Dad never said nothing to me. And we walked down to that thing. We stopped fly fishing on the, beyond, beyond. And we're catching fish and hooting and hollering and just can't believe how much fun we're having. And a siren goes off. And I looked at my dad, and he looked at me, and he kind of shrugged. I looked at my brother, and what was what's that all about? And all of a sudden, we looked up, and the dam was opening up, and here comes all these pulp logs. And if you've been to Spoomy Dam, there's one big rock out in the middle, and it's uh, the logs were hitting that rock and flying through the woods. And we were running through the woods, my brother and I, as fast as we could, and two of them hit my brother and pinned him against the, the ground there. And I was only 10 to 11 years old. I reached down and grabbed my brother and pulled him out of that hole, got that log off. And we ran up through, all the way up through the woods, left our fishing pools, everything there. We lost everything. And uh, I said to my dad, dad, did you know about this? And he says, uh, I had no idea that they would do that, right? And, but anyways, long story short, we later uh, gathered our what we could find of our equipment Went down to Roll Dam, got into a boat, went down the Lobster Stream, and we spent a week on Lobster Lake. And that was like incredible fishing there too, right? Again, no access roads from a, from a car. You had to get the only way you could get there was by boat up Lobster Stream and the trout we were catching in Lobster Stream. And oh my gosh, it really planted um, is the reason why I am the way I am today is because of experiences like that. So what Steve is describing is he's describing the upper west branch of the Penobscot above Chesuncook Lake, where the Penobscot is basically forming from the north and the south branch, and they drain down into Sabumic Lake, where Sabumic Dam is. And uh, I want you to think, um, what's the uh, main cabins that are up on Sabumic Lake at the headwaters, Steve? Uh, Pittston Farm. Pittston Farm, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the most rich Native American history spots in the state. In terms of that's where the indigenous people used to go at the headwaters of the Penobscot. Yep, they would work their way all the way up from Bangor to there. Right. And uh, Steve was, of course, learning how to fly fish during an industrial period. Right. The log drives were going on. This was in the seventies. Yeah, it was actually in the 60s, and I right. think they ran their last log drive in 74. Right? That, that is the last log drive, yeah. right? Yep. And um, so they're running logs down through, and you're fishing at the same time and having success. Mm. It was crazy good. Uh, I, and I can't also – I can't believe that there weren't more people, right, as comparatively to today, right? Back then, there was nobody there. And uh, there was no moose hunting, so the mooses were just – moose. there was a lot of moose around, and we were just in awe of the how wild that area was and we were in one of those behind the pickup truck um lance um stackable um t uh, trailers and we 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 worked out of that and um my brother and I just we we talk about even today of uh going into little elm pond we we walked my dad were like three three mile walk a five mile walk we walked in and there was no boats we put together a bunch of logs and we went out fishing and uh we caught all these brook trout we got pictures of us holding these big brook trout again i wouldn't have kept them if i know how hard it was to to grow them but mm -hmm. um 
we we ate brook trout and we just thought that uh, my my brother my brother and I to this day we just can't believe it. So what Steve's talking about is so from below Sabumic Dam you've got uh, Roll Dam which is really just a series of rapids. Right. And uh, down through those rapids I've done a lot of kayaking down through there and then the river starts to calm down. And what is up happening is that uh, Lobster Lake is a lake tributary that ultimately flows down through, is it Lobster Stream? Yes. Yeah. Um, to the west branch of the Penobscot. Right. And Steve would, this is near Northeast Cary area. Right. More or less. And Steve would paddle up into Lobster Lake. My parents used to go up and camp up in there. I've camped up in there. It is beautiful. Sandy beaches, yeah. uh, full of brook trout, beaver dams flowing into the lake. Uh, just gorgeous. Uh. I think till even to today, I think the uh, uh, ice fishing is allowed on that lake, but but only um, like two trap minimum, no power augers or nothing. You know, they restrict it pretty tightly, right? And uh, but that place was a gem, just an absolute gem to go camping on a point out in the middle of that of that lobster uh, lake was just amazing. Yeah, Lobster Lake is absolutely gorgeous. Everyone should check it out. Uh, Steve, before we – I really want to take a deep dive on the Moose River. But before we do that, I want to touch on something that we haven't talked about, and that is our mutual appreciation for going to Labrador. Because Labrador really still represents today what probably the fishing might have looked like 100 years before you and I came here. Right. I mean, I'm talking about the Moosehead Lake region. So if you get on a float plane and you fly up to Mackenzie River Lodge, which is where the the world record landlocked salmon has been caught, you and I have been there. Yeah. You've been there many times. I've been there once, and I'm going to go there again next year. You're going to go there again next year. Tell me about your first trip to Mackenzie. Well, I got invited by a good group of guys, um, again, um, it's very hard to put together a group of uh, six people, like-minded people, with a passion for fishing enough to want to spend, you know, at that time, it was about $4,000 for a week in uh, 2015. And, and something happens. Life happens, right? People's uh, lives, um, heart attacks, uh, marriages, you know, all these different things that come up within that time period. And uh, they were missing a guy. So I didn't know any, I only knew one person in that group that invited me to go and I, and I went. All I had to do is pay the uh, down payment actually for that, uh, for that trip. And when I, once I went there, I just couldn't believe the size. Of, what did you find? I, I mean, it was incredible. The whole trip there was crazy to uh, drive 22 hours to Labrador, fly in on a float plane for an hour and a half, get there, these remote place, uh, like in the middle of nowheres. And then I, uh, get there and I get all these flies and they say they're all too small. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, well, I, I'm going to go try these fish out, you know? And, uh, so they gave me the old fellow there, uh, gave me a, um, an old a mouse floating mouse pattern because lemmings are perfect there. And they, and these brook trout and these salmon eat the dickens out of them. And so we started catching these fish on these big topwater uh, mouse patterns, and it was just incredible. That and leech patterns. And uh, as of late, uh, we've been catching a lot on uh, small nymphs, but uh, back then it was all about the big flies. And uh, But the salmon, um, you never knew what you were going to get. You would either get a nice brook trout, you might get a whitefish, you might get a lake trout, you might, but really uh, the landlocked salmon are uh, six to 12 pounds. 
and they liked real screamers. And uh, we, uh, my good friend Gary Agron and I, I think one day caught 17 between us. And uh, we just uh, set that. We were pinching ourselves when we got back to the cabin. We just couldn't believe um, the great, how, what a great resource that is. Again, you know, to take, to raise that fish to that size, the obstacles and the, the things that they had to get through is just amazing. Well, they have an incredible natural habitat. Uh, yeah. Andre Lake is basically the headwaters feeding the Mackenzie River. Andre Lake is a, a big, deep water source. I want you to think the Range of the Lakes region completely filling what we would recognize as maybe the Rapid River right. would be maybe equivocal to what Mackenzie River is, So right. we, but longer. Mackenzie's probably more like seven, five to seven miles long yeah. and many pools and great fishing, and we love it so much. And uh, I don't want to rob uh, the Maine fishing community of what we have in Maine, but I cannot ignore the fact that when I've gone to Labrador on Steve's advice to go to Mackenzie River and to do a little respect to Carol Ware, Carol was one of the first outfitters to really start to promote. And Carol's been on the podcast. Yeah. He and Lila were promoting Mackenzie River with Paul early on. And they spoke highly of this water because of the Wananish. Wananish. The right. landlocked salmon. Because Mainers, like you and I, Steve, I'm a Mainer, you're a Mainer. We love our landlocked salmon. Oh, yeah. And uh, you you really get an appreciation when you're hooking into a, a double digit uh, landlock salmon and playing it out on a, sometimes on a size sixteen um, pheasant tail, right? It's just crazy, crazy good. And you catch them. And uh, and you're right, uh, Lila and Carol and Paul Ostergray. It really is about the people, and that's what you find: uh, the people, the f the food, the camaraderie. And about the fishing is, uh, you won't find anybody that's more excited about fishing than Paul Ostergrave or Carol or Carol Lila. Um, they they pass they pass that on to you. You get you can feel it. It's uh, it's real. They uh, they have that that drive and that passion for fishing, and I I love it. I love them, and I love it. And, and it's a it's a catch and release operation. Up oh yeah, barbless hooks, uh, catch and release only. There's no bringing home a trophy, uh, this or that, nothing. Uh, and they, I've seen, I've heard stories of people flying in there by their their own private planes, and wanting to buy their way onto the river, and it's not going to happen. With no, Paul no, and his group, right? It's private. It's a private, and uh, sixty people a year fish there, and uh, they are blessed people. And so I've been booking it every other year because he books right up solid, and uh, I book it every other year. And um, I save my pennies because it's not not cheap anymore, but it's uh, it's reasonable comparatively to other places of that quality. Well, if it if it, it matters, I mean, I went there for free the first time as what's called a fam trip, which is familiarize yourself with the place. And after spending one week there, I now pay as a professional fly fishing guide and professional the full rate, and I will in 2024. Yeah and inviting my friends to join me because it's worth $6,000. Oh, yeah. I would I would trade $6,000 in a second to spend a week at McKenzie River Lodge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you do too. And I'm going to next next August for sure. I love it in the fall, uh, the last few weeks that it's open because you get the big spawners coming in, all the big bright colors and uh, a beautiful fish and um, – yeah, it's in it, but it's physically demanding, guys. It's physically demanding. 
You've got to walk a lot uh, through paths. They're making better trails, but it, you have to walk a long ways. It's uh, rough going sometimes through rocky boulder fields and and fly-infested woods. But it, um, I can still do it. That's why I exercise every week to keep in shape so I can do it. Steve, let's segue back to um, Maine. Um, Moose River. There's a lot of history that I want you to share with the audience. It's incredible. It's tell, tell me about, I mean, you decided to build a camp on the Moose River. You knew a little bit of, about its history, but you know a lot more now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's learning the history of this thing is cre- incredible. Maybe from a guiding perspective? Yeah. Well, who, are, who are the guides that work out here, well, Steve? Well, you, uh, you got legendary guides like Joe King and uh, Tunny King and uh, the King family and uh, the Munsters and uh, the Terrios are the ones that I know and the records as well, all, all the records, canoe builders and everything, and the Maynards. And, uh, yeah, they, it's, it's, there's probably a half dozen uh, families that grew up over here. And um, they they uh, they they tell me the stories of them catching all kinds of lake trout back in the forties uh, and stuff. That dam was built in nineteen started in nineteen twenty five and finished in twenty seven. But the um, the whole history is incredible. How Vaughn, Mister Vaughn, owns all of the east side, and now another fellow owns all the west, and it's going to be there. Un- undeveloped uh, for a long, long time to come. So, um, but to learn all the names of the pools and why they're named the way they're named, and um, and to read uh, that river, you have to you have to really read the water to make it up there. I've learned that uh, sometimes the hard way. I often tell Russ Terrio, I um, I rode a till the, the the bottom every year for him, so he doesn't hit any rocks, and he just laughs because. Never really showed me the river, but uh, I watched him go up the river. So I knew the general routine, how to get up there. But it was the canoe king of uh, North Conway who taught me how to read water and uh, how I, uh, the U's and V's of a river and uh, how, how to best uh, traverse it without hitting bottom. And, uh, and it's all good until you come to Sam Cole Pitch. Now, I don't know why it's called Sam Cole Pitch, but it's only about a four-foot drop. But it's the make or breaker whether you're going upstream or downstream. And um, it's the flow of CFS is what really is a determining factor. If you get above 1,000, almost 1,200, you're in pretty good shape. But you go below that, you're really – it's easy going up. But coming down, you're you're in for it. Yes. So CFS is an acronym for cubic feet per second. And the Moose River, like the East Outlet or the Penobscot West Branch or anywhere else – they're always releasing water out of the dam. So if the river on the Moose is below 1,200 or 1,000, it's very difficult to take a propeller-powered boat and navigate all the way to the dam. Right. So, Steve, let's back up. Let's talk about the pools because, to me, the pools are historical. Yeah. So we're sitting here, again, on your camp right below Gilbert's Pool. Right. And so if you motor up from the what used to be the Moose River store – and you go by Maynard's and the water starts to flow. We get to Gilbert's. Take me through the pools up to the dam. Yeah, it's uh, it goes, uh, we call um, Gilbert's Pool, I think, was named after uh, a lady who owned uh, where my house is now and all the houses all the way to the end of the road. And um, she had her own guide uh, who stayed in an area right around where my house is built today. 
And uh, I believe that's why it was called Gilbert's Pool. The next pool up, we call Scott's Pool. Again, that was from Scott Paper Company. Um, no particular reason why it was named that. Um, you go up a river a little further, you go to Vaughn's Pool. Now, Mr. Vaughn owned all the property from my house all the way to the dam on the opposite side of the river from my house. He owned it all. And he had one camp up there, only accessible by boat only. And uh, what he did was he... So he deeded that, all that property over to the state and said to them that he wanted to keep it natural and never develop. So they made it basically a, a preserve, right? So all that property up there. Yeah, there's no camps up there. No camps and there's nothing, only a trail for the for the law, for the fishermen to come down through and fish. And Mr. Vaughn's uh, uh, relatives uh, now own that, that camp in there, and it's only run by um, – and the stipulation was never to have electrical power or a road to the camp. So they only have, they still go up the river to get into that pool, into that house. Gas, gas lights, gas stove and everything. And then as you go up, it goes to Sam Cole Pitch or the Pine Tree Pool, actually the Pine Tree Pool and then the Sam Cole Pitch. Where you'll notice there's a big weir up there where the logs, when they used to come down through uh, the dam, used to steer the logs down towards the center of the, of the river. And then, of course, the famed Gage Pool. Like uh, that's where, um, in the, back in the fifties and sixties, and probably seventies, um, they would open up the dam and then go down and read a gauge. Actually, physically read a gauge on the water to see how much it was flowing back then. Right, Steve. Can you tell me about the history of the Brassway Dam? Well, the dam, like I say, it was built and uh, started in twenty five and finished in twenty seven, but uh, it was turned into a hydroelectric. Uh, Somewhere's in the uh, nineteen late 80s, it turned into a, uh, a hydroelectric uh, plant, a good, and it's now owned by Brookfield. But uh, that dam was built, and when it did that, when they built that dam in 25 and 27, it flooded 9,000 acres of uh, land above it, and uh, which is now Brasswell Lake. It emerged uh, Little Brassway with Little Brasswell, and um, it's a, again, it has. Great uh, brook trout fishery out there as well, but there's a lot of other warm water fish up there because it just doesn't get uh, the cold water like Moosehead Lake does. Right. It's an impoundment now, and the biggest fear is that there's smallmouth in there. And there is. And uh, I've caught uh, upwards of four-pound smallmouth bass right below the dam. So they're here, and they're here to stay, and it is what it is, right? Uh, Yeah. And uh, but we noticed up there, Mackenzie, right? That uh, the pike live right next to the uh, yes. the salmon and the trout, and um, and they make it work. Yeah. So although you have the unfortunate occurrence of a foreign fish moving into a piece of water like uh, Brassway Lake above Brassway Dam, uh, those fish are turning into forage fish. You're catching salmon with yellow perch and small smallmouth bass in their mouth. Absolutely. I caught some uh, just here in September where the fish that were jumping around the dam and below the dam were actually jumping for um, yellow perch. Coming out of the turbines. Coming through the turbine. Right? right. Yeah. What else do you remember about the families that you mentioned earlier, the Munsters, the Terrios, and all them? Guiding on the river as you were starting to guide, what what are some of your memories and how did you connect with those people? Well, I was just sitting here watching, right, watching them go by my house. And I just couldn't believe Woody from Woody's campground would take and uh, be paddling. 
a records canoe and a woman a sport up front were just jigging two rods <coughs> they go all the way up through the rapids where it takes my eight horsepower uh, about half throttle to get up through some of these rapids and uh, these guys did it by hand they were polling they were actually some of them were polling some were just big wide paddles and they would paddle these sports up there i just to this day, I still can't believe it. And even to this, just as soon as last year, Russ Terrio pulled uh, his canoe uh, all the way up to the dam. And how old is Russ? He's 86. He pulled the entire upper part of the Moose River yeah. to the Durasway In Dam. In a records canoe. In a records canoe. Steve, when you started to use your own Grand Laker by, made by Toby, what was your first, first experience like actually navigating the river? Oh, I was so nervous because I was so in love with that canoe, and I um, was just scared to death, really. But I uh, I said, I'll just take it slow. When I had my good friend Nick up front, and he was looking at rocks, you know, pointing left or right, but I could read the water enough to get get up there. But when it came to Sam Cole pitch, I mean, I would just sit there. Th we talked, and we talked, and we talked about getting over it, and then I just said, I'm just going to do it. I kind of know where to go, but... I'll poke it through, and um, when we made it up, it was like I won the lottery because now I had access to Gage and the dam, <coughs> which to me is some of the best water in the whole river. And I just love it, the fact that I can go anywhere. If there's fishermen on the one side, I can go to the opposite side. I can stay away from people, and I can uh, as much as I can and uh, and bring my sports to right where the fish are inaccessible to those shore fishermen and and it makes it a lot of fun it really does and i can just sit there in that canoe and talk and we can i've seen moose go across that river now there's all kinds of uh, eagles out here and and a big gray, gray herring out her, heron out here and they're just it's just a wonderful river i've just fallen in love with it i've uh i just can't stop thinking about it when i'm not here but to share it is is where my my where I really get my enjoyment out of it. And I saw a couple of young ten year olds, twelve year olds, and dad showing them how to fish. And I just can't wait to share that information with all those all those types of people to try to get more passionate uh, people of, uh, outside, right? Outside fishing. So if somebody wants to hire Steve Barry to go on a Moose River trip, the season is not all summer long. When does it start? When's the best time to come? And tell me about like your, I mean, I can see as I'm sitting here tonight looking out at the river, you have a great run right in front of your camp. You could oh, fish, yeah. you could do nothing more than to just sit right out here on anchor. Well, but you must have kind of a routine of how you take people up the well, river to share. Absolutely. If I, if they got, if I get the water flow, I'll, I'll start at the dam. And I'll give it. You go all the way. Right. I'll go right up to the dam and start there and work my way all the way back. Uh, that's kind of my routine that I that I use, and uh, and I get up there early, up there, up to the dam, and I just work my way back all the pools. I go wherever any nobody else is, and uh, it'll take me all morning. So my a typical morning is like from uh, four thirty in the morning till about ten thirty. Then I stop and I wait until about two thirty in the afternoon. I go out and do another section. Uh, uh, do the same routine, go up and back. Now, the best time to fish here, obviously, is like uh, from the, from the first of May. Say it, say it about the tenth of May, ice out. Um, to about um, all the way through the end of, uh, of of June. But the biggest thing is the flow of water. It can extend or shorten your season dramatically. 
and they got a lot of flow. The fish love it in here. When they shut the dam, or if they shut the dam in the middle of June, those fish will move out into the river, out into the lake. But uh, and then the last two weeks of September, obviously the spawners, it's it's spectacular, just spectacular. And I understand the reason for closing it on September 30th is really to protect the spawning fish uh, on their reds. I understand it and I respect it, right? And I respect those biologists who work very hard at trying to manage those fish. But um, but the routine I do is I do those two day, two you know, five or six hours in the morning, five or six hours in the afternoon. And I will gu- I will guide veterans and their uh, their uh, wounded warriors. I have my own little wounded warrior program. Well, I, I I will um, people who are staying at the camps down below uh, that want to be guided. I do it for free. And people over eighty, pretty much, I do for free. And I just bring them when if I'm available and I'm here, then I'll, I'll probably bring them out for a morning or an afternoon. Uh, fishing because I love it and I love sharing it with those people, right? It's my give back program, my own give back program. But um, yeah, I, I do that about a half dozen times a year. And you could call me and uh, I'd be glad to, if you know somebody who is in that situation, I'd be glad to do it for them because I am retired and um, I've got a little bit of time. And you've been successful, Steve. And what Steve is really saying is that because of his success, he enjoys giving back to the community as we all do and I've done and he is doing. And so if you know of a veteran that wants to spend a day on the water, contact Steve. If you know of someone that's maybe getting long in the tooth and they can't pull on waders anymore and they want to go out and catch a landlocked salmon or a brook trout, Steve's a good guy to contact. He's got all the right resources to do it. I also know, Steve, that you have always had an interest with helping young people. You talked a little bit about it earlier with encountering someone on the river, but tell me a little bit more about some of the things that you've done with working with youth. We've talked about disabled veterans and older people, but you, I know you've always helped younger people. Yeah, well, I just enjoy their, enjoy seeing that look on their face, including my own grandchildren, right? I, um, I bring them out here and uh, and it, sometimes it's not even catching land, uh, salmon or trout. Sometimes it's just catching those chubs up in the Scots pool with a with a strike indicator and a nymph rod, and I'm showing them how to cast, and uh, they're catching one after another. They could care less if it's uh, a salmon or a trout. Yeah, the species doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, right? It's all about that thing. And these and, and um, these kids will come out here, and my grandchildren will be out here catching crayfish out here up front. They'd rather do that than anything. They look more forward to that than anything. But, uh, yeah, to see the kids, um, I'm, I'm very approachable, and um, I, I encourage you to get a hold of me if you had somebody you knew that would uh, really benefit that, especially the younger kids. I've had kids on Facebook. Um, their dads uh, say, Gee, could you bring my kid out? And I said, yeah, I'll be here at 4 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, and they're standing out there with waders on and with their poles in hand, which nothing nothing makes me more happy to do than uh, to, to do that for people. It's not about the money anymore, right? It's, it's about uh, the people. No, that's great, Steve. So, you know, you've made an indelible mark on, um, you know, with your work with uh, Merchant Marines, uh, working at BIW, everyone knows you there, um, extending your recreational interests to do more on the Moose River, being a guide, you're a master main guide. You did accomplish getting your recreational <laughs> yeah. license. 
Um, Steve is a guy that loves to wear a wool jacket because that's the best fabric to wear. Uh, he's a great friend. He's been a friend of friends of mine. I consider him family, and I want to share this experience to meet who Steve is because he's an incredible asset to our community. Steve, thank you for joining the podcast. You are very welcome, Mike. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com. Mm-hmm.